Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good morning and welcome to our morning worship service this morning at West Houston Bible Church. We have a guest organist this morning, Carolyn Smith. Carolyn is Janet Deaton's sister, and she is the organist at the uh, Aberdeen Cathedral, correct? Not the cathedral. A large church in Aberdeen. Large church in Aberdeen, in Scotland, not Texas. (laughs) And she will be playing a closing number on the organ after uh, the final prayer, so just remember to stay seated instead of uh, there'll be a final hymn. Doug will close close in prayer, and then she'll play. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Worship is a serious and sober time for every believer. It is our time to come together as a body of believers in order to reflect upon who God is and what He has done for us. Scripture teaches us that when we come together to worship, there are certain procedures that we should follow, and that this is important because we come to into the presence of God. We come before him as a corporate body under certain uh, conditions that are set forth by him in his word. This means that we are to come to before God in fellowship, and we are to worship him by means of the truth, which is his word, and by means of God the Holy Spirit. So that if we come out of fellowship, then our worship is not of any spiritual value. This is why we emphasize the importance of confession of sin before God and the privacy of each each believer's priesthood, that we uh, make sure that we are in fellowship with no unconfessed sin in our life, and that we, therefore, are prepared spiritually for worship. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it is a tremendous privilege we have to be able to gather together in freedom to worship you, to focus upon who you are and what you have done for us in our salvation and in our spiritual life. Father, we come together and we are thankful that you have given us so much and provided so much for us, and we recognize that all that we are and all that we have is due to your grace. Now, Father, as we focus upon you this morning, we pray that we might be have our minds free from distraction and that we might be able to focus and concentrate upon you, upon the songs that we sing, the hymns that focus upon your person and your work, and that we might be able to concentrate and focus on the teaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture reading this morning is in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, we will read verses 6 through 10, and then I will shift to Galatians chapter 2, verses 16 to 21. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ, to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now to Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. 
knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Let's stand together for our second hymn, hymn number four, How Great Thou Art. Please stand. It is God's magnificent grace that has provided us everything we need for our physical life and for our spiritual life. Scripture teaches that part of our worship is giving, giving in support of the teaching ministry of the Word of God, which includes everything from uh, evangelism, missions, whether uh, at home or abroad, and, of course, the ministry of the local church. It is through the local church that God has established the primary means of the communication, teaching, and proclamation of the Word in the church age. The means of financing the local church and financing ministries through the free will offerings of believers. It's not uh, giving in order to gain something from God or to be further blessed by God, but is indeed simply a response to all that God has done for us, as well as a desire to promote and provide for the teaching of God's word. Scripture says, as every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your grace that you have given us so much. You have provided so many things for us. And, Father, these gifts that we give now are simply a token of our appreciation, our gratitude for all that you have done for us, and our desire to support the teaching of your word both here and abroad. We dedicate these gifts to your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together, go before God's throne and ask his guidance and direction upon our study today. Father, you have revealed your word to us down through the ages, through the prophets of the Old Testament, apostles of the New Testament, and this is your inerrant and infallible revelation to us. Father, as we study your word, it is your word that God the Holy Spirit uses to challenge us with our relationship to you and our, the way we think, that we are to be in the process of exchanging our own opinions and ideas, those things influenced by the world system around us with the eternal truth of your word. So, Father, now as we study your word, help us to focus, to concentrate, and that your word will give us great encouragement today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Last week, being Resurrection Day, I began a series on resurrection. And it's going to be, instead of a one-day Resurrection Day message, we're going to make it a short two- or three-week series to deal with various issues. And so you might open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is where we will focus this morning. However, before we begin our study of the Word, I want to have a brief introduction of a little moment of our Christian heritage. Every now and then I take time to recognize a day that has some significance in terms of our history, some significance in terms of uh, the history of Christianity that we might uh, remember some things that have happened in the past and how they have come to impact us today. There is a uh, proverb that says that uh, he who has no understanding of the past and lives only in the present will forfeit his future. So it's important for us to understand that we do not stand here today simply uh, on our own in isolation, but where we've come today is a result of many things that have happened in history. Now today is a day that is known as Patriot's Day, April the 19th. This is a holiday that is observed usually in Massachusetts and Maine as a state holiday. Those of us who have been born and raised in the great Lone Star State of Texas usually didn't pay too much attention to this day because it was overshadowed by April 21st, which is San Jacinto Day and the uh, independence of Texas. But on April the 19th, 1775, the shot heard around the world was fired. And on April the 18th, the day before, the British military governor of Massachusetts, Major General Thomas Gage, gave an order to send 700 British troops to the village of Concord, Massachusetts, to confiscate the stores of ammunition and cannon which the uh, colonists had stored there. And it was also thought by the colonists that he was sending them through Lexington to arrest uh, Samuel Adams and John Hancock, both of whom were involved with the Sons of Liberty and uh, various activities that had been going on in uh, the previous years. Uh, to alert the colonists of that danger, numerous messengers went out from Boston, and among those were Paul Revere, who is the most well-known, William Dawes, and a black patriot by the name of Wentworth Chadwick, who had quite a role to play both in the uh, American War of Independence and subsequently in the early stages of our nation's history. Now, when the alert came to Lexington, uh, Paul Revere is well known because that was the route that the British uh, troops took that early that morning. And when he arrived at Lexington, he went to the parsonage of the church in Lexington where the pastor, a man by the name of Jonas Clark, was hosting as his guest Samuel Adams and John Hancock. They had been there for several weeks and under his protection. When Revere arrived at his house, uh, Pastor Clark sent out uh, the alarm and around 50 to 70 Minutemen assembled on Lexington Green in order to be there, if necessary, to protect the life and property of those in Lexington. When the British approached, the first platoon fired. None were injured, but immediately after that, the second platoon of British fired, and eight were killed. This is commemorated uh, by the statue to the Minutemen in uh, Lexington. And on that monument it reads, I'm getting ahead of myself, on the monument it reads, this monument is erected by the inhabitants of Lexington under the patronage and the expense of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to the memory of their fellow citizens, Ensign Robert Monroe, Jonas Parker, Samuel Hadley, Jonathan Harrington, Jr., Isaac Mozzie, Caleb Harrington, and John Brown of Lexington, and Asa Porter of Woburn, who fell on this field, the first victims to the sword of British tyranny and oppression. Now, there's more to this story than what we have normally heard as we've gone down through a secularized education. And that's where I want to give you a little insight on the rest of the story. 
The issue at this particular time were three things. First of all, their colonials' legal rights as Englishmen under British law. They felt that they were not being given their uh, rights as outlined in British law. Second thing was they believed they had a right to defend their lives and their property against the encroachments of government. And they clearly understood that the terms liberty and freedom meant liberty and freedom from the encroachments of government. Government was viewed as uh, a government by fallen men who could easily take power and take power egregiously away from the citizens. And so they understood that liberty meant freedom from the uh, oppressive reach of government. And third, they understood that they had a right to possess arms for self-defense and to protect themselves against not only the threat of Indians, which had been minimal in recent years, but was also against the encroachments of a tyrannical government. Now, the home in which Adams and Hancock were staying was the home of the pastor, Pastor Jonas Clark, who had been the pastor of that church since 1755. His predecessor for about 30 years was John Hancock Sr., the grandfather of the signer of the Declaration of Independence. The men who gathered on Lexington Green on that morning, the Minutemen were men primarily from his congregation, and Captain John Clark was the leader of the uh, Minutemen, and he was a deacon in the Lexington Church. Now, the background of this is to realize that in those days, the pastors taught not just the gospel, not simply the Bible, but they understood that the Bible should be taught in a way that addressed all of the issues of life. And so they not only taught the key doctrines of Scripture related to God and salvation and the spiritual life, but especially during midweek services, they would teach what the Bible taught about law, freedom, tyranny, taxation, the rights of man. And 1 Samuel 8, which is a key text in support of limited government, was one of the favorite texts that they used. This was not something unusual for Massachusetts. This occurred throughout the colonies at that time. The pastors from all up and down the seaboard from the Carolinas to Massachusetts were men who primarily came out of a Reformed tradition. Now, what I mean by Reformed is that is the stream of theology that finds its, uh, its uh, source in John Calvin and the theology that came out of Geneva during the Reformation period, whether you were a Baptist or whether you were a Presbyterian, whether you were uh, any other denomination, most of them had a fairly strong Calvinistic or Reformed theology. And during the time of the Reformation, as well as and especially during the time of the uh, battles between the British Parliament and the Stuart Kings, James I, Charles I, the uh, Protestants in England had refined their theology in terms of what the Bible taught about the role of civil government and the role of the citizen and where ultimate authority uh, resided in the state. And so they had a well-defined uh, theology of government. And these ideas were shaped in the 1600s, not so much in the 1700s, but the 1700s saw the, the fruits of that. These ideas were taught throughout the colony, colonies in pulpit sermons, and uh, the people were very well read, not only in the Scripture, but also in terms of various uh, political philosophies uh, of the day, especially uh, John Locke. Now, a question that we ought to ask, but I'm not going to try to answer this morning, is was their theology right? And that's a necessary question, but it's not an easy one to answer. And I've read lots of things extensively over the last 30 or 40 years because the theology that dominated the colonies at that time was a covenant theology. And even though many of the colonial Puritans were pre-millennial, they weren't trying to establish a, a theocracy, neither were the Amils, 
but they had this covenant theology wherein they confused the church with Israel, and they viewed themselves as being the new Israel, and so this gave them a certain uh, mentality that they were here in the colonies to establish a a new kingdom for Christ. And so this kind of thinking permeated uh, nearly everyone in uh, in the colonies. So that was uh, that was very important, and we would not agree. When I read their sermons, I look at how they use primarily Old Testament texts directed to Israel's conquest of the land, and they try to make a a literal application of that to their own experience and uh, their own times. But aside from that they had some very well-developed and very good thinking that had been honed, as I said earlier, in the previous uh, century in relationship to understanding the role of government, the role of authority, law, economics, things of that nature. One of their hallmark ideas was the idea that the law was over the king. That had been forged in those battles with James I, Charles I, and their claim to the divine right of the monarchy. The King James Version, which most of us are familiar with, was also called the Authorized Version because James I had authorized its translation. And I've been doing some reading over the years about the various characteristics of different, uh, different translations and the history of the King James Bible. And one of the interesting things is that up until the time of, of James I, the authorized Bible in the churches in England was called the Bishop's Bible. And this was the the translation that James had preferred. And there was no mention of the word tyrant or tyranny anywhere in the Bishop's Bible. But the Bible that was popular among the uh, Reformed, among the uh, Anglican Calvinists and the Puritans, was a translation that had come out of Geneva in the middle of the 16th century called the Geneva Translation, and it was filled with a lot of study notes, just like your Schofield Bible or Ryrie Study Bible or NIV Study Bible. It was loaded with notes, and there were over 700 uses of the word tyrant or tyranny in the Geneva Bible, and James I hated that. And just to give you a little little example, in Exodus uh, chapter 2, the Pharaoh had... Uh, commanded the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, to uh, kill all of the male babies that were born because of the prophecy that a male deliverer would come. And, of course, that was in reference to Moses. And so these midwives went out, but they refused to obey the command from the Pharaoh. And when they came back, the Pharaoh said, well, why haven't you killed any? And they deceived him and said, well, these Hebrew mothers are very strong, and by the time we get there, the babies are already born, and it's too late to kill them. Well, in the Geneva Bible, they said that what they did was right in terms of disobeying the Pharaoh, but lying about it was wrong. Now, there are different views on how to handle that situation and and that text, and I'm not going to get into that, but that really bothered these divine right kings. They believed that if the Pharaoh had told them to kill the babies, they should kill the babies, even if it violated the law of God. And so it was in that kind of a situation where the monarch was asserting absolute power no matter what to define morals and to define uh, truth coming from himself rather than from the scripture that you had the writing of a, of a seminal work called Lex Rex by a Scottish Presbyterian pastor named Samuel Rutherford. He wrote that in 1644. And his argument was that the king is not over the law. The king is not the source of the law. The law is over the king. He was a well-known Scottish pastor and theologian. He was one of the five representatives from Scotland to the well-known Westminster Assembly that wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is still the doctrinal statement for many conservative Presbyterian churches. And his writing of Lex Rex was uh, very influential in the political philosophy of both John Locke and Thomas Hobbes. And so it's with that intellectual 
background that we come to understand what was going on in the colonies. And that's an important question for us to always ask when we study something is why did these things happen? What were the people thinking? What shaped their thoughts? And it came out of this rich theological, biblical tradition as they had studied and understood the Bible that shaped the thinking of those men who stood on Lexington Green. Well, that morning, early that morning, when word came that the uh, British regulars were coming out, the alarm went out and about 70 men formed up on, on Lexington Green. And here is a picture of Lexington Green with the church. This is the same church that was there at the time, church in the background. And in the foreground, there is a monument to the men. This is placed on the line where the colonial uh, Minutemen had formed up waiting for the British uh, to appear. Captain John Parker was the uh, commander of the Minutemen, and he gave them a direct order as seen on the inscription of this monument, stand your ground, don't fire unless fired upon, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. When the British came into sight, uh, Jonas Clark, the pastor, writes in his memoirs, uh, immediately upon their appearing, so suddenly and so nigh, Captain Parker, who commanded the militia company, ordered the men to disperse and take care of themselves and not to fire. Upon this, our men dispersed, but many of them not so speedily as they might have done, not having the most distant idea of such brutal barbarity and more than a savage cruelty from the troops of a British king as they immediately experienced. Our information comes from the publication of a sermon that he uh, preached on the anniversary of the battle, the first anniversary, and it reads, the fate, the fate of bloodthirsty oppressors and God's tender care of his distressed people. That was the title of the sermon. So the sermon preached at Lexington, April the 16th, 1776, to commemorate the murder, bloodshed, and commencement of hostilities between Great Britain and America uh, in that town by a brigade of troops of George III under command of Lieutenant Colonel Smith on the 19th of April, 1775, uh, to which is added a brief narrative of the principal transactions of that day by Jonas Clark, A.M., pastor of the church in Lexington. And so this is a quite interesting first-hand account to read. Now, the British came out. They were going to go to Concord to uh, confiscate the ammunition. They recognized that they don't need to confiscate the weapons if they can just dry up the source of ammunition. We see a parallel that, to that going on uh, today in our country. When the citizens can't defend themselves against the government, then the citizens become helpless. So it was that battle at Concord, I mean at Lexington, that began. They left Lexington. They went on to Concord, where they were met with the men primarily from the church of William Emerson, the grandfather of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was 32 years old and the pastor of that congregation. And what we're usually not told is that a vast number of pastors, took men from their congregations, and then marched off to war. And the point that I want to show here is simply that the Bible made a phenomenal impact on the thinking of the people at that time. It shaped their thinking, and it laid the foundation for uh, the American Republic. Now, let's turn our attention to God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last week, I began the study of 1 Corinthians 15 by looking at the significance of the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection. There we go. 1 Corinthians 15.1, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, and I pointed out last time that this is actually a translation of the, the noun Evangelion, which is the word where we get our word evangelism, or evangel, the good news, the gospel, which I preach to you. And there's the same verb repeated, which you also received, in which also you stand. That the point of chapter 15 
is not to explain the gospel or the content of the gospel, but the point of chapter 15 is to explain to the and to remind the Corinthians of the content uh, or the significance of the resurrection for their spiritual life. It is that phrase, in which you stand, that is important. Now, the picture that you see there in the foreground is the modern city of Corinth overlooking the ruins of the ancient city of Corinth. Now, the term gospel has a broad use and a narrow use, as I pointed out last time. The broad use describes not only salvation, but also the spiritual life. The narrow use has to do with what we should do in order to be saved, in order to have eternal life. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we read, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is a broad use of the term. The entire book of Mark is a gospel, and that includes a tremendous amount of information that is not necessarily relevant to your immediate justification. So this is a broad use of the term gospel. We have a narrow use of it in the passage I read this morning in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul is distressed over the fact that the Galatian believers have departed from the strict understanding of justification that he taught them when he was there and have substituted for it a justification by the works of the law due to the influence of the false teachers known as Judaizers. So here Paul says in Galatians uh, 1.7 that this is not another gospel, and he uses a Greek word which implies another of the same kind. In other words, it's a different uh, completely different gospel, categorically different gospel. And he says, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, we live in a world today, some 2,000 years later, when there are many different distortions of the gospel. There are people who not only add to the gospel, but there are people who take away from the gospel. And as we study the Word, we should be asking the question, what is it that we must believe in order to be saved? And we should also be addressing the question, when I, when I am explaining to someone how they are to be saved, what is the information that I should be giving them? And that is going to vary from person to person, depending on their background, the exposure they've had to the Bible. It's going to depend on how much time you have. Sometimes we only have a, a short amount of time, and so we can only perhaps give one verse or another verse and just briefly explain the gospel. Other times we have more time, and we can take uh, days or weeks or months or years to dialogue with people to help them understand uh, all that God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. But as those who are expected, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are expected to witness to unbelievers, to explain the gospel to them. So we need to have in our minds a clear understanding of what it is we should be uh, communicating and what it is that is, is necessary to be believed in order to be saved. We also live in an era when in recent years there have been some uh, some not only disagreements but divisions that have come out by uh, specifically the free, what is, we refer to as the free grace movement. Now, for those of you who may not know anything about that, never heard the term, the free grace movement refers to a uh, mostly a group of men coming out of a background at Dallas Theological Seminary who recognize the danger of what is known as lordship salvation which is really sort of a backdoor works gospel. And in a nutshell, what lordship salvation does, whether they use the term or not, is the idea that the way you know ultimately the final authority and how you know you were really saved is that you have works that indicate that. And they would take a verse out of context, such as a statement by Jesus, that by their works you shall know them. And the context of that statement by Jesus is that 
the works are their words, the teaching of the Pharisees, and it's not their external activities, it's what they teach, and that it was inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. So, uh, Lordship Salvation basically says that if you claim to believe in Jesus as your Savior, and you're still carrying out all the same terrible, sinful things you were doing before you were saved, then you didn't have the right kind of faith in Jesus. You're not really saved. Because if you were really saved, you wouldn't be doing the things you're still doing. And this is a subtle backdoor introduction of works to the gospel. It is saying that uh, faith, the real faith that you must have, is always going to be uh, indicated by certain kinds of works. So who are we to judge? I mean, the problem with the one problem with the Lordship Gospel is it makes everybody a fruit picker, fruit judger. What are we doing? Are we really saved or not? And the focus is on a subjective look at works and not the objective belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in the context of this movement, there have been many wonderful and great things that have been said and produced and written that have truly clarified many problem passages and many uh, issues related to the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ and that the gospel is truly a free gift. But in the last seven or eight years, Many within that movement, specifically with an organization called the Grace Evangelical Society, and I know that many of you get a newsletter from them or have seen the newsletter, and they began to teach that, and they began to ask a question. And often in the history of Christianity, the way people get off track is they start asking the wrong question, sort of like asking somebody if they're still beating their wife. However they answer the question, they're in trouble. So sometimes we ask the wrong question, and it gets us in trouble when we try to answer it. And the question they start asking was, what is the minimal amount of information somebody needs to believe in order to be saved? And I don't think the Bible ever addresses it that way. When you read through the book of Acts, and I've read through Acts four or five times in the last uh, several weeks, and when you look at the explanation of the gospel by Peter in Acts 2, by Peter and John in Acts 3, by Paul in Acts 13, Acts 17, and later on when he is testifying before Felix and Agrippa, you do not see a cookie-cutter gospel approach. Paul is not coming out and reaching into his pocket and saying, okay, there's four spiritual laws and then going down the four spiritual laws. Each time he presents the gospel, he is very tuned to his audience and their background and their understanding. And so different facets of the work of Christ on the cross are emphasized. There are also passages in Acts where the gospel is simply summarized, but statements surrounding it indicate that much more was said than that one statement. And so I think it's wrong to say there is simply one very narrow way of expressing the gospel. The problem also is that the GES gospel said that you do not need to know anything about what Christ did on the cross. All you have to do is believe Jesus can give you eternal life and you will be saved. You don't have to know anything about Jesus and my response to that is, well, shouldn't I be able to distinguish Jesus from Jesus? I learned yesterday that Chewy is the nickname for Jesus. So when you go to Chewy's Mexican restaurant, you're going to Jesus Mexican food. Just thought you'd want to know that. So which Jesus is it? Is it Jesus Garcia or Jesus of Nazareth? There has to be some content to who this Jesus is that we are proclaiming before we believe in him. Second thing that's wrong with their approach is that they go to passages that are statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John that are, before he goes to the cross, addressed to people who are not clear that he is going to the cross. But when you look at statements in Scripture after Jesus goes to the cross, it is the cross that becomes a focal point that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. 
And so this has caused a tremendous ripple and reaction. And we always have to be careful about those who get, who, about any reactions we have to some sort of erroneous teaching because the history of the church is also filled with these kinds of patterns where you have somebody go off in this direction and then the corrective goes all the way to the other side and often it is not quite right either. So it forces us to go to the text and to see what is stated there. Now, when we look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, Paul talks about this gospel. And the way we know he is talking about a narrow use of the gospel is because in the second chapter, he refers to the gospel again in Galatians 2.14. And in the structure of the epistle to the Galatians, the first two chapters deal with their distortion of the gospel. And chapters 3 through 6 deal with their distortion of the spiritual life. So that's one way we know this. But in 2.14, Paul talks about the truth of the gospel. And then in just the next couple of verses, he goes on to talk about justification by faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice here that he doesn't mention eternal life. And he mentions really the work that Christ did, faith in Christ who provides us with justification. Now, that's important, but Paul doesn't mention justification every time he gives the gospel. He, sometimes he talks about other aspects of the cross. So we have to distinguish between the narrow and the broad use of the word gospel. Now, last time I emphasized that as Paul gets into this discussion in uh, chapter 15, he talks about uh, the gospel that you received, past tense, completed action, in which you now stand. It's a perfect tense form of the verb, perfect active indicative of histemi. It's a stand that was taken in the past, and he's emphasizing the current results of an already completed action of standing. So he is reminding them that they believed the resurrection when he first came, but now they're doubting it. Now, if we have a corrected translation of, of uh, the second verse, we read that this is, he says, by which also you are being saved. See, it is a growth process. So his emphasis in chapter 15 isn't on the entry into eternal life or justification, but in the implication of resurrection for our ongoing spiritual life, by which also you are being saved if, and that is assuming that they would hold fast to the good news which I proclaimed, unless you believed. Now, some translations say in vain or, or some other thing which implies that maybe it wasn't a valid faith, but the Greek word indicates to no purpose. See, you can believe in Christ to no purpose, not that you're not saved, but that it doesn't lead into spiritual growth because as the Corinthians were, you become carnal and you never grow or advance in the spiritual life. We've charted it this way in the past that we talk about the first part of salvation as phase one or justification. That's Paul's favorite word especially in Romans. When he uses the word saved in Romans, it's not talking about justification. It's talking about glorification. He uses the word justification to refer to that change that occurs at the instant of faith in Christ when we're justified, when we're regenerated, when we become a new creature in Christ. That is followed by what we call phase two, which is the spiritual life, our spiritual growth. And that is then followed by phase three, which is glorification when we're absent from the body and we're face to face with the Lord. Sometimes we talk about phase one is being freed from the penalty of sin. Phase two is when we are freed from the power of sin as we learn to live in the power of God, the Holy Spirit and the word of God. And then freed at glorification, we're freed from the presence of sin. We also refer to these as positional sanctification or progressive sanctification or ultimate sanctification. Now, Paul goes on to say in verses 3 through 5 what he taught them when he first came. 
Now, this is a passage that many people go to to try to get a kernel of the gospel. This is where we're going to understand what the gospel is. And I remember uh, when I was in seminary and we had an evangelist teach a class on evangelism, which is how it should be done. And he was very much a believer in a free grace gospel. And uh, yet, nevertheless, he used this verse as a verse which identified the elements uh, of what you needed to believe in order to be saved. Now, it seems that way at first glance. Let me explain. Paul says to them, For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is what I gave to you at the beginning This is the foundational doctrines I taught when I first came. This is the priority of what should be communicated. He says, I delivered to you what I also received. This is what he received from the Lord Jesus Christ when he was first saved. And so he is going to then emphasize what he received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture's and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, that's the uh, Aramaic form of his name, then to the twelve. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to not only understand the context, but we have to understand the grammar, for the grammar is crucial. So, lest I bore you, I'm going to try to make it simple. The main verb is, I delivered. This is what Paul taught them. This is what he explained to them when he first went to Corinth. Now, the content of what he delivered is explained in three, in four separate clauses that are clearly indicated by a Greek word that is the word hadi. And in the English, I've highlighted this because it's translated with the word that. And the, the, the hadi clause in the Greek or the that clause in English indicates the four propositions that Paul explained to the Corinthians when he first came. It says, I delivered to you, first, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Second, that he was buried. Third, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and fourth, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Now, when you chart this out, what you see is that these four clauses must be given equal weight. He's not saying, I deliver to to you that Christ died for our sins, sub-point, he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, sub-point, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. That's how some people want to explain this. And then they would say the gospel then means that you have to believe that Jesus not only died for your sins, but that he was raised from the dead. And we have to address the question, what is the role of resurrection in what we believe to be saved? But when you look at the grammar here, what this shows is that there are four points of equal weight. Christ died for your sins. He was buried He was raised, and he appeared. If this is telling me what the core of the gospel is, then I not only have to believe that Jesus died for me under their view, but I must also believe that he was buried and that he was raised and that he appeared to Peter and the Twelve. Wait a minute. I don't think I even knew he appeared to Peter and the Twelve until I was 22 or 23 years old. I trusted Christ as my Savior when I was six, but I don't think I understood the dynamics of who he appeared to until I started reading uh, the Bible for myself when I was in my early 20s. So does that mean I wasn't saved until I was 21 or 22? Well, see, at the recent pastor's conference, this issue came up, and people began to ask that question because one of the speakers was one of those who's reacting to the other view, and he uh, uh, came out and he said that he, he believed that in some way you, you had to believe in the resurrection. And I asked a question at the end of the meeting. I said, well, what you seem to be saying, what we all believed when we were saved, was simply that we believed in a risen Savior, a living Savior. Well, none of us, when we trusted Christ our Savior, thought of him as a dead Savior. And he said, well, that, that's fine. That's what he meant by implicit 
And I understand that, but this gets really fuzzy when you start talking about, well, they implicitly understand the deity of Christ or they implicitly understand uh, the resurrection because when you're three or four years old, how much implicit is there? But the grammar here indicates that you've got four different things going on in this particular, in this particular verse. So as we ask the question, what place has the resurrection in our justification, we need to distinguish between information that is given in gospel presentations in the scriptures and information that must be believed in order to be saved. That's an important distinction. Because what we have in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians 15 is a reference to what was taught or what was explained in a particular context. And if you go through the book of Acts and you look at every time you have more than a summary statement of the gospel, you realize that different points were emphasized and different things were stated about what they believed. So do we have a fuzzy gospel? No, we don't have a fuzzy gospel. We have such a complex gospel because Jesus solved so many different problems on the cross that as long as we are believing that he did something on the cross that solved our problem, then we have salvation. Let me explain with a couple of more points. Romans 4.25, Paul, after his lengthy discussion on justification, says that Christ was delivered up because of our offenses. That's the cross. He goes to the cross because of our offenses, because of sin, and was raised because of our justification. New American Standard Translation, accurate from the Greek, that indicates the justification The basis for justification occurred prior to the resurrection. The basis for justification occurred at the cross. Another way you can clarify this, and we've gone through this many times, is to look at the types and the patterns and the shadows of the Old Testament. When you go to the Levitical offerings, Scripture says Christ is our Passover. We just did our Passover demonstration a a couple of weeks ago. The focus there is the lamb. The lamb is sacrificed for us. Did it come back to life? Where's the type of resurrection in the sacrifice of the lamb? Scripture, New Testament says that Christ is our guilt offering. Well, in the guilt offering, as you study in Leviticus chapter uh, 4 and chapter 5, where's the resurrection there? See, the focal point on what is necessary to solve the sin problem is what occurred on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when the God darkened the skies and he imputed to Christ our sins and he paid the penalty for our sins. And when it was over with, Jesus said, it is finished. And John, the writer of the gospel, says, and when it was finished, to telestai, Jesus said, it is finished, to telestai. Perfect tense form of the verb basically means paid in full. The sin's paid for, canceled, as we've studied in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Our, the certificate of debt against us was nailed to the cross where it was wiped out by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So the cross is the focal point of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. At the beginning of this epistle, Paul said to them, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not crucified, dead, and buried. Not crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected. uh, But Jesus Christ and him crucified because it is that element on the cross that is when the work of paying for our sins was accomplished. Lewis Berry Chafer, in his work, Salvation, on page 101, says about the gospel, preaching the gospel is telling someone about Christ and his finished work and his finished work for them, which they are to believe. Now think about that. 
Preaching the gospel is telling something about Christ and his finished work for them, which they are to believe. The focal point of there is Christ and his finished work. They are told something, and they are to believe it. He goes on to say, this is the simplest test to be applied to all soul-saving appeals. The gospel has not been preached. Notice he's now talking about what is communicated, not what is believed. He says, the gospel has not been preached until a personal message, that means you must believe this, until a personal message concerning a crucified and living Savior has been presented and in a form which calls for the response of a personal faith. Jesus is presented as resurrected and living. That is different from saying that they must believe in the resurrection or they're not saved. Now, I'm going to twist your minds just before we wrap up. We live in a screwy world, a really crazy world, where people believe all kinds of contradictory things. Last week there was an article in the Houston Chronicle about a, an Episcopal priestess. I don't know how else to describe a female minister in the Episcopal Church. So she is an Episcopal priestess who, who added to her belief system Islamic faith three years ago. Her bishop, rightfully so, gave her a year off to think about things. And when she came back, she had not clarified her thinking one little bit, and so he gave her a six-month suspension, and then she's out. How anyone in the world can believe in Islam and the Quran on the one hand, and the Bible and Christianity on the other hand, and say, I believe in both. You know, that's almost as good as uh, uh, Michael McCrory, who was uh, Bill Clinton's... Um, uh, press secretary back during the Monica Lewinsky stuff. And in January of that year, our president at that time said, I didn't have sex with that woman. Then in August, he said, I did have sex with that woman. And so at a press conference, uh, McCrory was asked, which is true? Which one? What he said in January, what he said last night. And Corey said, they're both true. <laughs> See, that's postmodernism. I can believe whatever I want to believe, and nothing has to, has to fit. Well, there are people who consciously, intellectually, reject the deity of Christ and reject the resurrection. And I do not believe that you can consciously reject the deity of Christ and reject consciously the resurrection and believe Jesus died for you and be saved. And the reason is, is because if you are consciously, intellectually rejecting the two things that define who Jesus is, then you're not believing in the biblical Jesus for salvation. You might as well believe that Jesus, the gardener, died for you because you have rejected the, the who part. See, we always talk about the person and the work of Christ. A three-year-old is not going to have a very good understanding of the deity of Christ or the Trinity or the resurrection, but he can understand that he can't get to heaven on his own. But Jesus did something for him, and if he'll trust in Jesus alone, he can go to heaven. And he's saved. But a 25-year-old intellectual from Harvard who rejects consciously that resurrection could ever happen or that God could ever become a man can't believe in the right Jesus to be saved. So let's put it in a little formula here. X is one radical here that just simply stands for some understanding of our problem. It may be as simple as, I just can't get to heaven on my own. And it may be as complex as, I have done such horrible things, I am so guilty of sinful acts that God could never accept me. Whatever that X is, whether it's simple or whether it is complex, it simply represents some understanding of the problem. Y represents the solution to the problem. See, the X represents what Schaefer said about telling something about Christ. 
So then we say that in the gospel, what we're doing is we're believing that Christ saw problem X at the cross so that we now have solution Y. The centerpiece is the cross. Because we all come to the gospel from different situations and circumstances in life. And, and we understand that we can't do it because of any number of things that could be, in, be the X. And what Jesus did on the cross was the Y. Now, theologically, we have used the barrier demonstration and illustration before that there's these various problems that we all have. The sin, we're spiritually dead. There is a penalty for sin, condemnation. There's a problem with the character of God, the justice of God, problem that we're unrighteous, we're uh, in Adam. These define the theological problems. But Jesus solved those. So we can come to the cross perhaps understanding that we're not righteous. The gospel is explained in terms of imputation and justification that's resolved at the cross, so we're saved. So X would be I'm unrighteous. Y would be Jesus' righteousness is available to you if you trust in him alone because of what he did on the cross, and you're saved. Or we can come to the cross, the gospel, understanding that we're spiritually dead, but what Jesus did on the cross, if we believe in him, we'll be regenerated, and we're saved. We can come, I'm guilty of sin, but if Christ paid the penalty, and so there's a remission of sin. Or simply, I just can't get to heaven on my own. Jesus did something on the cross that will get you to heaven if you believe in him. So nowhere in here do we see that resurrection is a necessary component of what we must believe in order to be saved. But it should be there when we explain the gospel. Because again and again and again, when we see these explanations of the gospel in the scriptures, those examples for us, we see that they present Jesus as God, as the Messiah. All kinds of things are taught to help define who Jesus is. But then the the command is to believe that Jesus did something for you. So that helps us to understand and clarify the gospel. Now, this is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If we skip down a few verses to his summary statement, he says, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, I mean in terms of everything that he had said about the resurrection and the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, that's what we preached and that's what you believed. Now, some may think that, oh, I see the word believed there, so that indicates the gospel. The gospel isn't the only thing we believe, folks. The gospel is what we believe in order to be justified, but in order to be sanctified, to grow spiritually, you have to come to believe many other things. And that is why Paul is addressing their lack of belief in physical bodily resurrection, is because he has said in verse 1 and 2 that this is foundational for your spiritual growth. It is not an optional belief. And that is the focus of the chapter. This chapter is not explaining the essence of what you must believe to be saved, justified, but the importance of resurrection for your ongoing spiritual life, which is what I emphasized last time. In the last verse of the chapter, he says, Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, immovable. Two words that indicate this, just stable as a rock always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, this clarifies this passage. Ah, but there's another one that people go to, and that's Romans 10, 9, and 10. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that he rose again from the dead, we will be saved. What does that mean? Well, we'll find out next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're so thankful for your word, which so clearly describes for us our state of being lost, separated from you, spiritually dead, that we could do absolutely nothing to qualify for salvation, to make ourselves savable, that you had to do everything. And you did that in your grace. 
You demonstrated your love for us in the manner of sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, that by believing in him and him alone, we have eternal life. Father, our prayer is that if anyone here this morning is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, then we pray that they might have certainty this morning as they come to understand that Jesus died for them. He paid the sin penalty for them, and that by simply believing in Christ, trusting in his completed work on the cross, they have eternal life. They can be declared just, and they're regenerated, and that that can never be taken from them. Father, we pray that we would recognize this isn't an academic discourse, but this is vital to our own spiritual growth, that the resurrection implies we have new life. We have victory already over death. This gives us confidence. This gives us a future, and we are to live today in light of that future in eternity. And we pray that you would challenge us with these things. In Christ's name, amen.